All right, you guys ready to get to work? Let's go. Galatians 1, verses 1 through 10 is where we are going to be today. Hey, here's where we're going in the next couple of weeks. Next week, actually the next few months. Next week, I am starting a series of messages on the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And we're going to work our way through that, that uh, book verse by verse. We're, we're going to go through it um, line by line. It's going to be... It's going to be just so rich for us, I think. Nehemiah is, um, is about halfway through the Old Testament as far as how it lines up in the books, but chronologically where it is in sort of the, the timeline of God's people is it's, it's, it's the record of kind of what's happening at the end of the Old Testament before this period of 400 years, before the book of Matthew, the first gospel, picks up. And the reason we're doing Nehemiah starting next week is because it has some really, really poignant and important things to say about people who are on a mission together doing something for Jesus, which is us, if you haven't figured that out by now. And so um, here's what you can be doing this next week is just begin reading through Nehemiah, jot down some notes. Um, It's going to take us from August 2nd until probably mid-December to get through that book, probably in the neighborhood of 15 to 16, 17 messages. And um, you will quickly realize that there's a few chapters in there where there's just a whole list of Hebrew names, chapters 3, I think, and chapter 7. And you may be wondering, are we actually going to do a sermon on those? better believe it. We're going to rock that out. I'm going to read all those Hebrew names, and we are going to make application, and it's going to be awesome. So be, be reading Nehemiah um, over this week, and uh, just start to familiarize yourself with that book. But today, I mean, for the last couple of weeks, we've just been doing some standalone messages and, and to get our hearts uh, ready and just to think about what God is doing. And so today, I want to this last message before we start a series in Nehemiah, which we'll be in for the rest of the year, I want to just uh, go back to a book that is one of my favorites, Galatians. In fact, the great reformer Martin Luther, you probably heard of him, important guy in the history of the church. He used to refer to the letter to the Galatians as his Catherine von Bora, which was the name of his wife. So he thought that this little letter, he loved it so much, it was like his, his little wife. And so it'd be like me calling, open to Jennifer, chapter one. I mean, that's how, that's how much he... You guys aren't into it as much as I am. But I mean, just think about how much he loved the book. And this, this little book is a, is, a, is, a, is a condensed look at really the, the, the message of the gospel. And so we're going to uh, clarify and hopefully reprogram our hearts to the message of the gospel today as we look at just the first few ten verses of Galatians. So if you're Galatians chapter 1, I'm going to read it in just a second, but let me give you a little bit of background on Galatians because we're kind of parachuting down into a book here that we haven't covered in a while. In fact, a couple years ago we preached through Galatians all the way through. Um, But if you don't remember, Galatians is a region that is now kind of currently Galatia, the region, and the people that comprise the church there, the Galatians, are a group of people that lived in where modern-day Turkey is, basically. And Paul had been there with his ministry associate Barnabas, and they had uh, preached the gospel in the region of Galatia. And uh, in, we read about their work there in the middle of the book of Acts, primarily in Acts chapter 14. And he goes and he preaches the gospel there. And these people are mostly Gentile they're pagan, they're, they're, they're worshiping Greek gods. I mean, they are messed up religiously and theologically. In fact, 
uh, Paul is preaching the gospel there at a city called Lystra, which is in kind of southern Galatia. And he preaches and he's walking around the city and there's this man there with, with uh, lame feet. He hadn't walked since he was, he hadn't walked, walking, what, what did it, walked since, <laughs> right, he hadn't walked since he was born. Calm down now. All right, get your, get your bearings. Walked. All right, I have trouble with verb tenses all the time. Messes me up. All right, and my mom's an English teacher, and sometimes she listens to the podcast, and I get emails from her. But anyway. <laughs> um, he had not walked since he was born. And Paul comes up on this guy, and Paul is full of the Spirit of God and the anointing of God, and speaks to this guy, and he says, rise up and walk. And... And this man rises up and walked, and he walked. And the healing power of God was on these apostles to do these great wonders in the early stage of the church. And by the way, we believe that that type of power is still prevalent in the church today. But we don't have time to unpack all that. We'll get into that a little bit more as we go. But, but Paul comes up on this guy. He tells him, get up and walk. He walks. And the people in the city are so full of pagan worship and, and wrong ideas about God as they start thinking that Paul and Barnabas are some Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, who have come down in human form. And so they start bringing like cattle and oxen and, and decorations to to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas aren't there at this moment. They're like, you know, chilling out, hanging out, um, just having some downtime. And they hear that these people are starting to worship them as gods rather than God himself. And so they start tearing their clothes off, walking through the city saying, you're missing it, you guys, you silly pagans. It's not about us. We're trying to point you to Christ. And so then they re-preach the gospel and and the people are kind of like, oh, yeah, I sort of get that. And then some Jews show up from another city and start to dissuade the Gentiles who are starting to come to faith a little bit in Jesus. And to try and dissuade them, they quiet down the crowd. And then they stone Paul. And he um, is dragged out of the city. They stoned him and they leave him for dead. In fact, they leave him because they think they've killed him. And then some other disciples come along and get Paul, you know, give him some uh, smelling salts or something. He apparently comes back and then he goes on his way. And so now he's writing a letter back to these people. Can we categorize this as a difficult experience? First of all, you preach the gospel. They get it all wrong. They start bringing cows to sacrifice to you. Then you tear off your clothes and say, no, you got it totally wrong. And then some Jews show up and stone you and leave you for dead. And then you have to get revived. And dr- so as he remembers his experience in the Galatian church, it is a, well, it's a, it's a difficult one. Can we, can we just say that much? And so he's writing to these people now because he has heard that the church there is now starting to adopt a perverted gospel. And this is the perversion of the gospel that these Galatian early believers are adopting. What Paul was preaching... All right, now this is important because we spent about a year on the book of Galatians several years ago. And there was one tagline. We've gone over it again a few times. There was one tagline that, um, if nothing else, I wanted you to remember from Galatians. You're going to have an opportunity to recite it back to me here in just a second. But, um, but if there's one, Paul was preaching to these Galatians and he was saying that, that faith in Jesus, and this, this is the gospel of the Reformation, this is the gospel that Paul preached in the first century. It is, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no other good work that you can put on top of it. Nothing that we do justifies us 
in the eyes of God, but simply because of what Jesus did on the cross, taking the the penalty and punishment for our sin and then rising again victoriously over our sin and over our rebellion and faith in that. And that's not even a work because even the faith that we have to exercise belief and trust in what Jesus did for us is a gift of God, Ephesians 2 tells us. So, so uh, salvation is all grace, all faith in Christ alone. It's not Jesus plus water baptism, Jesus plus some gift, Jesus plus circumcision, and this was the issue of the Galatian church because these Jews were coming along and they were saying, hey, um, no, it's good that you accepted Jesus. But see, there's this thing that we've been doing for centuries called circumcision. So line up, boys. Let's go. You've got to add circumcision to your belief in Jesus. And when you do that, that makes you a real Christian. And Paul gets word of this and he writes this letter back to these Galatians. And he's saying, no, no, it is not Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus water baptism or Jesus plus church attendance or Jesus plus good works. It is, here's your chance, cross point. Here you go. It is Say it with me now. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. A little weak, but I'll take what I can get. I'll take what I can get. So in other words, faith in Christ plus no thing that a human can bring to the table is what saves us. Now, of course, we know that we have to respond in faith, that we have to trust in him. But even that faith that we have, he gives us, he opens up our hearts to be able to do that. So we can't even take credit for our response to the gospel. And then we also know that the rest of our life needs to be a life of response to him. But Paul is, is now writing this letter back to them, and he is irate. Because okay, here he, he hears that they're perverting the gospel. Right, And once you, once you add a little something to it, man, that, that's, that perverts the whole thing. It's a slippery slope to human-centered salvation. Because when you add one little thing, like, it's, yeah, no, no, be, be a Christian, but, but now you've got to sing these songs. Or now you've got you to gotta act like this. And now you've got to do that. When you start doing that, generation after generation, it becomes incrementally a slippery slope to just a few generations later. You have nothing that even resembles Christianity. So Paul is adamant. He's angry. And plus, he's probably a little mad because he got beat up and stoned and stuff. And so it's, it's, he's writing back and he's, he's, he's getting to the point. So let's read Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through, men, through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. This, is, this sentence is just the opening of his letter. But it is, this sentence is like, this is on spiritual steroids. There is more in this little sentence than we can even imagine. Verse 4. Okay, verse 3. Let me go back. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. Who gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. According to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me stop there and just unpack that sentence. And we want to get to this next section here in just a moment. I want to ask you one question, which is the overarching thing that I want you to think about today. But just think about the power of that verse. It says, verse 4, the the grace and peace of God from our Father and Lord Jesus. Verse 4, who gave himself, meaning Jesus, gave himself up for our sins. Look, I think it's really important. One of the things we battle against in our day is a, 
a very weak and watered down, watered down version of Jesus. And um, we, I'm not afraid to admit it. I'm, I'm secure with this. But we watch a lot of HGTV in my house. Um, we do. We like it. We like, in fact, just this morning, me and my boys were watching this um, little thing before we got in the car to go to church about how they were redoing somebody's backyard into like a Tuscany paradise. We kind of connected with a little bit because my people hail from the boot, also known as Italy. And um, so anything Italian, I mean, we're not culturally Italian, but if it's got Italy in it, we just sort of resonate to it for romantic purposes. And so we're like, yeah, represent Tuscany. Um, but there's, um, but there's, there's sort of this view of Jesus, if we could be honest, in our culture. And I think it's spiritual attack. I think it's spiritual warfare that Jesus is sort of a mild-mannered, He's like a European soccer player with blue eyes and olive skin. His hair's pulled back in a bandana or a little band-aid and um, bandana. Um, and he's, he's real meek and mild. And he's, he's very gentle. And all the paintings, like all the paintings we have of him nowadays, remember we showed one a couple of months ago, it just kind of looks like Andy Gibb with a tan, doesn't he? And, and I think, you know, Jesus is meek and mild. He's very meek and mild. He's as meek and as gracious and as gentle as, as, ever, as any man has ever been in a righteous way. But he's also the sovereign king of the universe who has all authority and all power. And he, this verse says that he gave himself up for our sins. Like the Romans didn't, they didn't take him against his will. He didn't, he didn't get overtaken by the Jewish religious leaders he the sin of the world did not break jesus to the point where he had to had to just acquiesce to wickedness john chapter 10 jesus says nobody takes my life from me i lay my life down why is that important you're like okay brad i get it why is that important because i think that in america we want like a, a dumbed down version of a jesus like a hip pocket Jesus who's nice when we need him to be nice and our I think for most of us we, we sort of don't see Jesus instinctively as the sovereign great awesome all-powerful king who is worthy of awe and worship and reverence and he is he is the most unbelievable beautiful combination of exalted power and incarnate humility. And those two things do not go together on our plane. You are either the gentle, humble guy who, who, who's not very tough, or you're either the domineering, authoritative guy. Jesus is, is the sinless, perfect combination of strength and gentleness. And I think in our culture, we either err on one side or the other. We make him into an HGTV until you're decorating host, or we make him into some dreadful sovereign who just wants to punish us. But the biblical representation of Jesus is, is strength that lays down his life for the sake of his people, according to his will and the Father's will, not according to this broken world who overtakes him. That is unbelievable to think that God could be all-powerful but all-humble at the same time. 
Those two things do not go together in our mentality, but they go together when we look at Jesus. Why do I bring this out? Because I think a correct view of Jesus will help you worship him better. And when we come to him, we will truly be able to sing those songs that we sing with awe and reverence. Look, A.W. Tozer, this man who was a pastor in last century, the 1900s, he said, he said the most important thing about each person is what they think about when they think about God. So a right understanding of who Jesus is, is absolutely essential to correct worship of Jesus. In fact, he said that in his same book, it's called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's a short little book. I, I highly recommend it. A.W. Tozer, T-O-Z-E-R, The Knowledge of the Holy. It's one of those books that I recommend you get. It's a lifetime book. He said that having a right understanding of God and who Jesus is saves a person from a thousand temporal problems. And understanding that Jesus is all-powerful and in incredible strength, yet in incredible humility lays down his life for us, is, I think, I think one of the greatest truths that the human mind can wrap itself around and brings about worship in our soul. It brings about worship in our soul, which transforms us, which makes us more like him, which has a thousand spectacular benefits to the life of a believer who gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age I was talking to somebody just the other day, and we were talking about how you know, this world will lull you to sleep and make you think that everything's pretty good, but this world's wicked. Like, this world is wicked. Just this morning, um, I, I overheard a conversation between Jennifer, and she was on a call last night, and she was I mean, she's, takes phone calls at the house when she's on call, and, and um, she was at the hospital yesterday, and a new baby was born, and... Um, and this baby was born to a mother who went into premature labor because this mother was in a warehouse, evidently somewhere in Columbus, being paid to street fight. Like, that happens. Like, there are people in our community, young women who grow up in a culture where they're a pregnant young girl, no prenatal care, I'm sure the dad's not around. Like... A chicken like cockfighting, but the but the the chickens are humans, and in this case, young, pregnant, unwed mothers. What? What? And then and then we can drive. You know, we can go to our little nice restaurants and into our our little secluded little neighborhoods, and you know, just do our little thing and swim in our little pools and stuff, and just get sort of shielded from the wickedness that is around us and even in our own hearts. I mean, you give me. I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about these young lieutenants that um, come to Cross Point. They're stationed out at Fort Benning, guys that graduated from West Point, and they've been coming to Cross Point, and now they're going. And I was thinking about myself when I was in the same exact position as they are. And I'm so impressed with them because they're, you know, they're coming to church, they're living for God, and now we're sending them out into the army to be just righteous leaders for Jesus in, in, in our army. And I was thinking about myself being in the exact same position 16 years ago and how I was kind of really on the fence spiritually. And but for the grace of God, I staggered into a church and met a girl that I fell in love with. And then I began to live, you know, for Jesus. 
Jesus a little bit better. And I was sort of, I was accountable now because I was falling in love with one person. But I shudder to think about what might have happened in my life if I, I mean, I'm talking about not the wickedness of a, of a kid fighting in a warehouse who's pregnant, but I'm talking about my own life. If you give me just the ability to be unrestrained and live my life with no accountability, but the wickedness that I could have got into 16 years ago as a young soldier at Fort Benning, I mean, we don't have the time to tell how, 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 how despicably wicked my heart can become in that situation. And it's all around us. But we, we just fool ourselves thinking, ah, oh, it's pretty good. You know, it's all right. You know, football season's coming. You know, we'll do our thing. My kids are... I mean, Jesus saves us from a broken, despicably wicked world and from our own personable, personal, despicably wicked hearts. We're not pretty good people who need improvement. We're not. We're not. We are wicked people who need rescue. We, we need to be delivered. We don't need improvement, man. We don't need to be taught moral principles or ethical guidelines. We don't need help. We need rescue. We need resuscitation. And if you don't understand that, if you've been grown up in a church world that has preached, preached just kind of lollipops and butterflies, you have been fooled, man. You've been fooled. And when you don't realize how... Good Jesus has been what it does is it never produces true gratitude in you. And so Jesus is just like, he's the hip pocket Jesus. He's the HGTV host who comes along to help you landscape the yard of your life. But that's not biblical Christianity. Like he delivers you, man. He rescues you. I was broken, man. I was broken. I was wicked. I was a sexual deviant. I was jacked up. Until Jesus saved me. And even since he saved me, I've still had to deal with the consequences and the tug on my heart of those things. But he rescues us. That's the gospel. The gospel is not that you become good enough and that Jesus sort of works with you when you meet a certain level. The gospel is, is that he rescues wicked, rebellious fakers like me. And like you, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's not even my sermon. All right. All right. We'll, don't worry. We'll be all right. <laughs> all right. So here's the question I want to ask you before we get into verse 6 through 10. And this was Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, the German monk in the early 1500s who started the reformation of the church by nailing his 95 statements called the 95 Thesis on the chapel door in this little German city called Wittenberg, Germany. And he came to true faith in Jesus after having been a monk and training for the priesthood by reading the book of Romans. And he came across some profound statements in Romans chapter 3 in particular. And Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 where he saw that the power of the gospel is sufficient for the salvation of all people. And his heart was tuned into true faith. And he understood the difference in that moment between true salvation, between the true gospel and religion. And this is what he said. He said that the gospel is 
I am accepted, therefore I obey. And religion is, I obey, therefore I am accepted. So we're going to put that up on the screen. And I want you to think about what your default mode is as we read these next couple verses. And what I just unpacked for you, I think really that, that is the gospel, that we are, we are wicked. We don't need help. We don't need rescue. We don't need improvement. But we do need rescue. We don't, we don't just need Jesus to come assist us. We need him to deliver us. And the gospel says, I am accepted in Christ, therefore I obey. And religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. What's your default mode? I can be honest with you, my default mode still to this day that I fight with is, is I obey, I do good, I, I feel good about where I am, I'm kind of accomplishing some task, therefore I am accepted. Okay, so verse 6. Verse 6, it says, I am astonished. Now this is particularly important because the Apostle Paul in all of the other letters that he writes, whether it be to the Philippians, especially to the Thessalonians, to the Romans, to uh, um, uh, the Corinthians, even as crazy and as messed up as they are, he always starts his letter off with a bunch of, of warm congenialities. A lot, of, a lot of love flows out of his heart. But he is so upset about the distortion of the gospel that it's like you know human works plus Jesus equals salvation. He is so upset about that that he, is, he, he, he doesn't have any time for uh, you know, fluff. He's getting right into it. And so in verse 6, he gets mad. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The gospel that they were turning to was that you got to accept Jesus, believe everything Paul said, plus a little bit more. You got to get circumcised and become a true spiritual Jew. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly turning to that, who called you to the grace of Christ and are turning to this different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Just a little tidbit of help when you're studying the Bible. When one of the inspired biblical writers repeats himself and says the same thing twice, <laughs> Pay attention, like wake up and say, oh, what? Paul repeated himself? That's huge. Like he is so adamant about this that he's saying that anybody that perverts this, if you get this wrong and if you lead people astray in this, this fundamental essential thing called the gospel, let that person, even if it's me or an angel come down from heaven, let him be accursed. Now we in our culture have no idea of the strength of this word accursed. Accursed to us is like, like, like voodoo, you know, like some Cajun witch doctor or something, or, or I was thinking about what, you know, accursed. I, when I was a little kid um, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, my dad every night used to watch The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and um, he wouldn't let us watch that. It was a little too raunchy for us at that age. I mean, he waited till we were at least 11 or 12 to let us come watch that. Um, I'm just kidding, Mom. But um, he... <laughs> I would sit on the top of the stairs, and my favorite character for Johnny Carson was, remember the guy with the, he would wear that 
he was the amazing Karnak. You remember him? I guess you have to be born before 1980 to remember this, but um, the amazing Karnak, Ed McMahon, would come out and he would have these hermetically sealed envelopes and Johnny Carson would like put it up to his head and say the answer before and then he would open up and there'd be the question, kind of like Jeopardy, I guess, in a goofy sort of Johnny Carson sort of way. And um, when he'd get through all the envelopes and Ed McMahon would say, this is the last hermetically sealed envelope and then... Um, and then Johnny Carson, sometimes the, the crowd would cheer because the jokes up to that point had been so bad. And Johnny Carson would look out over the crowd as the amazing Karnak, and he would utter a curse on the crowd, like, may your pants be filled with, you know, bees or, you know, uh, ants or something. I don't know, whatever. And that's like to the level of like, we're like, oh, curse, yeah, I curse you or, you know, to cuss somebody out or to. But, but the curse here that Paul is saying is he's saying literally it's this word, this Greek word called anathema. And it's the same word of being forsaken by God that is used of Jesus on the cross that literally the Father turns his back on. He, he, he can't look upon the sin that has been laid upon Jesus. And it is, it is a moment of forsakenness. It is, it is when Paul is, he's not just saying, he's not just saying to the false preachers. He's not just saying to this perverted gospel. He's not just saying to, to people in our day who are trying to add something to the gospel. He's not just saying, you shouldn't mess this up. He is coming with every bit of force that he has and saying that this is so wrong. This is so fundamental that if you mess this up, let you be accursed. And so when we read that twice, 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 should grab our hearts and say, do I truly understand the gospel? The diversion of the Galatians day was, was adding circumcision to the gospel. Now, I may be wrong, but I don't think that's an issue for most of us. Um, I, I, I hope that nobody at the front doors of Crosspoint, when they were handing you a bulletin, aghast you. You know, I mean, and that's not part of our new member class. Right, we, um, this is what we believe, and you got to sign this document. And um, if you go in the back room, Reynolds and Will will be checking to see if you men are circumcised. I mean, we're. So, so it's easy for us to say, oh, well, gosh, those silly Galatians. Oh, how silly. Come on. Really? That's what they added to. But what do we add? Like, what do we add to the gospel? Like, what, what do we add to the gospel? What do, we, what do we divert and make our default position? I am doing good. I'm achieving. I'm obeying. I'm, I'm offering some little thing here therefore i'm okay with god you know what it is for me and i know this may not apply and i always get frustrated when the only thing preachers do is offer is offer um preaching examples because nobody that they're preaching to lives the life of a pastor but it's the only life i'm living and so it's kind of my context is man i just i just get caught up in you know your lives and whether or not there's decent crowds and whether or not there's people that are seem to be leaning forward and all of my how I feel about where I am with Christ is sometimes wrapped up in some sort of pastoral performance. I think about with my kids, you know, are my kids doing good? And it's all, 
And so I add these little things to the gospel. And what we do when we do that, just like the Galatians do, we subconsciously make the work of Christ on the cross less than sufficient. And we add a little bit of human performance and perception of people. And we add it to the gospel and say that I feel good about myself in this moment because other people feel good about me. Or I feel good about myself because of something that I have achieved or I am currently doing that now makes me feel better than I did before. And that is just a much of a perversion. In fact, maybe more dangerous because it's more subtle than this very outward and definitive act of circumcision that the Galatians were mixed up in. Ours is more insidious. It's more hard to discover. It's more, it's more subversive. And Paul fin- finishes his statement here, his opening statement to them by saying in verse 10, and boy, this, is, this question has just been... Uh, I'm rolling around in my heart lately. He says, for, listen, he speaks to these Galatians. He says, what are you doing, man? Why are you accepting this perverted gospel that centers the work on you rather than on Christ? And don't you see how that can wreck your life? Don't you see how over the course of time that will make it all about you and not about Jesus? And don't you see then how it will get into your life? Just a little bit of this, this perversion and it will begin to color you in such a way that it will it will completely divert and infect your life so that now what matters to you most is people and not God and he says in verse 10 for for what are we going after here guys for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God or am I trying to please man if I were still trying to please man I would not be a servant of Christ I read that sentence and I ask myself Brad are you a man pleaser Nor are you a God-pleaser. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we go home and we just say, that's it. (laughs) Forget everybody else, and I'm just going to go after Jesus and, you know, just, just whatever. Just start treating people terrible. No, but what's the default mode of our hearts? Is it that, boy, I'm doing pretty good here, therefore I'm accepted, Or is it truly that Jesus did it all, therefore I obey? Let me read this last verse and then the guys are going to come back. It's in Titus chapter 3. I think it's one of the most beautiful statements of the gospel in the scriptures. Titus chapter 3 verse 4. It says this, and this is St. Paul writing to a young man now, not a church, but to a young pastor named Titus. He says in Titus 3, verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. In other words, Galatians, He didn't save you because you figured out this circumcision thing and somebody else didn't. He saved you, Christian, if you're in here today, not because you grew up at First Baptist or Second Methodist or Third Presbyterian or Fourth Assembly of God or Fifth, my dog is bigger than your dog, Holy Temple Church of the Redeemer or whatever. He saved you not because you're an American that grew up in the Bible Belt, not because you're smarter than the guy next to you, He saved you because of his grace that allowed you to even have faith. But according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So um, if you're a Christian, I want you to realize a couple things. If you're a Christian right now, it's, it, it was all grace. It, was, it, it, it should produce in you this awe and reverence and response to God that should propel our lives to live for him in everything that we do. I think that another ill of the gospel of, 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 of religion in our age is that the Galatians were trying to add something to the gospel. In a lot of senses, we try and take something away from the gospel as well. We try and act like, you know, Jesus is just some sort of cultural God. I'll just kind of show up. I'll give. Like, it, it, like Robert touched on this last week. I thought it was so profound. It's easier to just sort of confess Christianity because we live in the Bible Belt. And so we can just kind of lull ourselves to sleep because, oh, yeah, I've got a little bit of Jesus over here in the corner, but I don't follow him with the rest of my life. That is not Christianity. Like, he rescues us to live a life of response to him. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 8, this is important. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Sorry, so he's writing to a young man named Titus, and he's saying insist on these things, so that, the, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You've got to catch this, okay? Verses 4, 5, and 6, he says, Jesus saved you by grace. He poured out his mercy on you. He did it. And because he did it, now insist that you guys devote yourselves to good works. But do you see how we invert that? We say, be good, be good, be good, and Jesus will accept you. And then we got little pastors who are timid, and they don't want to get up and get passionate about stuff. They want to sit on stools and have Starbucks up on there and have a conversation and grow a soul patch. And they don't want to get up there and say, Jesus saved you. Now you must, I insist on this, you must live for him because your life, your life is for him and not yourself. That's the gospel. That's the response to the gospel. And so I'm preaching to myself today. Obey. I obey because I am accepted. I don't continue to obey out of some debtor's ethic. And that is the gospel. And that's what we need to respond to today. So are you a Christian here today? Are you adding something to the gospel? Are you happy with yourself because you're in a good little season? If we could truly unpack it, is that where your, your sense of satisfaction and hope comes? Well, the Holy Spirit may be speaking to you now saying, no, no, recalibrate your heart on grace through faith in Christ. Over the past 30, 45 minutes, has it become clear to you that you're not a Christian? And that you need to receive this. He's, kind of, he's opening up your heart to this right now. And you need to respond to this. Right? Just like we read in Titus, the grace of Christ is being poured out on you richly. He's opening up your heart. Look, you have to respond to that. You, you have to take the faith that you've even been given by Jesus now. And you have to exercise it and trust in him. And you believe and repent and turn from self-reliance and this other diverted gospel and you say, Jesus, I trust you and I've kind of hip pocketed you. I've sidelined you. I've made you a cultural demigod and now I, I trust in you with all of my life. If that's you. You need to do that. The guys are going to come back and play in just a moment. Communion's going to be open for us to receive communion. People will be down here for you to pray. I'm going to ask you this question. 
Are you living on the gospel or are you living on religion? The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says, I obey and maybe I'll be accepted. Are you a man pleaser? Are you a God pleaser? I've got a lot of man pleasing ways to repent of. Is a friend's opinion wrecking your life? Does some inadequacy in your life absolutely dominate you? Maybe that's an indication that you're struggling like I am with being a man pleaser. The answer is not to grit your teeth and do better, but to apply the gospel to every area of your life and to repent and to say, Jesus, I need your grace. Help me. Help me. Like only you can. Recalibrate my heart to your grace and not my ability. Let's pray. Lord, I know that um, I've been a Christian for a little over 20 years now and still my heart is still torn. I want to add things to it. I want to minimize Jesus. I want him to only come out when I need him. I want to minimize his authority and reign over my life. I want to minimize my relationship to him so often and subconsciously to just a a past transaction to secure my eternity and then I can basically kind of go about doing what I want to do. And Lord, I know that the scriptures are completely unfamiliar with that. It's just that's not Christianity and Yet, so often I see in my heart that's my default. So God, would you do what only you can do? Would you give me the gift of repentance? And for those in this room who may be in the same place, would you give us the gift of repentance? And would we center our lives on the grace and the mercy that is in Christ that regardless of what we have done, when we believe in Jesus, we are accepted in that. God, would that drill down deep into our hearts? And then would we begin to see Jesus as this one who comes and he fills us with his spirit and he graciously equips us to, in our, in our broken, still being sanctified, mixed up ways, we then become part of this great redemptive plan to be a showcase for God's grace to people who haven't realized these things yet. May God turn my heart away from religion and turn my heart towards gospel truth. God, I I confess that so often I am subconsciously going after the approval of man and not after you and give me unusual wisdom to see those areas in my lives where I'm ravaged by opinion where I'm driven by perception where I am stymied by reputation and give me and these um, brothers and sisters of mine the unusual grace to be aware of those 
areas of my life and repent of them and walk in freedom. Gospel, spirit-filled, freedom. Freedom that the gospel brings, not the prison that religion brings. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for letting me meet my wife so soon after I was stationed at Fort Benning because I know that if I would have been left to myself, I could have wrecked my life. Thank you, God, for even since then, how when I've, my heart has been just tugged by my the vestiges and the leftover aspects of my old self that you by your grace have rescued me before I really destroyed myself. And God, I think back on some of those moments and I realize that it, it was not because I was able to muster any strength, but it's because you moved on my soul. And God, would you move on my soul again and would you move on the souls of people that are in this room so that we would would be brought to this place of broken blessedness to say, Jesus, you alone, you alone are worthy. You alone are worthy of all my life, all my response. And then God, use us for your sake and your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The guys are going to sing a few songs. You're going to receive communion. You're free to come and partake of that on your own.